Well, just a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity um, right here in town to sit down with one of our uh, pastors and ministry partners in Haiti. Now, most of what's going on in Haiti has fallen out of the news cycle. And so for us, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You'll likely remember in October of 2021 when 17 Mennonite missionaries, including five children, were taken uh, hostage there. Uh, Now, they did escape, but that was also on the heels of in 2021 where uh, their president was assassinated. So there's very few actually elected leaders serving in the government of Haiti, and gangs have absolutely uh, overrun uh, the country. Haiti remains uh, the poorest country in this hemisphere, uh, struggling to meet the most basic human needs for its people. And I'll be honest, it was overwhelming to hear Scylla talk about the current state of affairs there in uh, Haiti, a country I've served in, a country I love, a country that's a quick flight away for us if we were to be able to go and to serve. He's had to move his family, his wife and kids out of the country for their safety, yet he remains faithfully pastoring overseeing the orphanages that we support and the children that are there, trying to keep the ministry moving forward, trying to keep some semblance of normalcy, especially in these children's lives, in the midst of such danger and upheaval. And I'll tell you, I left that, that meeting. It's kind of surreal to, to sit at a dinner meeting in, in safety and in air conditioning and in comfort and, and hear the things that I heard. I went back and I just sat in my car in the parking lot for a little while and just wept and prayed. Just feeling just so overwhelmed and powerless. What do you do? What do you do in a situation like that? And thinking about what Scylla was about to fly back into and what he's going to experience day after day. And so I ask you this morning, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you hear and process through the brokenness and the pain and the dysfunction in this world? What do you do when, if you're being honest, it's just easier not to know? just to kind of turn our eyes and look the other way. Well, this morning we'll wrap up our Made for Mission series. I just want to thank you for being willing to take this journey with me. I know talking evangelism and global missions, it seems like a topic reserved for a missions conference or, or, or for missionaries, but let me remind you, that's who you are. So I'm speaking to the right audience this morning. Because we want to remember this, that you're not a missionary because you go on a mission trip. You're a missionary because you're a Christian, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the journey that he's invited all of us into, and he's given us the privilege to figure out how we fit our role in his great mission. And and we want to remember that he invited us into this because of his great love for us. And so don't miss this this morning. God doesn't involve us in this mission because he needs us. He involves us in this mission because he loves us. This becomes our joy and privilege. And so for us, that means something has to shift in our mindset from this being something that I have to do to something that I get to do. There's great joy in living out the mission that God has called us to. God's love captures us. God's love should compel us into action. 
Look at how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about the work God has called him to do. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything that we do. See, love for Christ was Paul's central compulsion for his life and ministry. It affected everything, his thoughts, his action, his behaviors, right? Can we confess something together? It's not that way for us, is it? That Christ's love compels everything that we do? Even for me, as one of your pastors, I'm not compelled by Christ's love in such a way that it affects everything about my life like it should. And that bothers me. That bothers me as I sit under scripture and as I read it and try to understand it. But thankfully, God graciously loves us and reminds us. He's patient with us and he calls us back to the big idea that we've been trying to get across in this series. And it's this, Christ's love is in you for them. Christ has given you his love to give away. It's been given to us not to terminate on us. It's been given to us so that we would give it away. Our text and our challenge this morning will be from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. I invite you to stand with me, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's word. Matthew 25 will begin in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goat on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers... You did it to me. Heavenly Father, I believe with all my heart that you have a word for us this morning. May we lay our souls open and bare before you, ready to receive what you have for us. Holy Spirit, would you do a work in our hearts, drawing us closer, opening up our minds to see and receive. And may you speak powerfully in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I stand before you this morning to tell you that Matthew 25 is a difficult passage of Scripture. At the very least, it's sobering, but maybe on the other extreme, it's a bit scary. You know, if we kept reading later in the chapter, verse 41, we'd read, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That ought to send a chill down any of our spines. And yet these verses are some of the most quoted in all of the Bible. And this chapter echoes its Old Testament counterpart in Isaiah chapter 58, where we see with remarkable clarity what God expects from those who claim to follow him. 
So here in Matthew 25, we're, we're given a glimpse, if you will, into what will take place at the end of all history when Christ is sitting on the throne and all the nations are there gathered before him. And he says they'll be divided into two groups, sheep and goats, believers and unbelievers, those changed by the gospel and those who were not. And only those whose lives were characterized by acts of love and mercy done to the least of these, Jesus is saying, will be blessed and welcomed into the Father's kingdom. So our application of this text this morning affects our eternity. And that's significant. Now, these verses, among many throughout the Old and the New Testament, underscore God's great concern for the poor and the marginalized. And so, as we've rightly received and applied the gospel in our lives, we're to show the same concern that God has for us, for others. Again, that we would give away this gospel freely, And I fully believe that God desires for you to understand and apply this passage in such a way that it would change your life. And in doing so, change the world to build his kingdom. So let's look quickly at a few uh, truths from the text this morning. The first is this, mission centralizes eternity in our gaze. Throughout this morning, we're given a chance to prepare for a day that's foretold throughout Scripture where Jesus will come to judge the people of the earth. And what an awesome glimpse we're given in these first few verses here as to what is to come, that all the nations will be gathered before the throne. But in this instance, not for worship, but to sit under judgment And so the point of this passage is to think about our lives here on earth in light of eternity, and more specifically, to prepare for eternity by investing according to the priorities of Jesus. So how often do you think about eternity? What's to come? In your day-to-day routine and in your life, how often is eternity on your mind? And more specifically then, how do you think about the priorities of your life in light of eternity? See, God's entrusted amazing resources to us, both individually and corporately. And so that means we have to ask some hard questions. Are we spending our time and resources on the most urgent physical and spiritual needs? Because eternity is at stake. As we order our lives and we prioritize our resources as families, but also as our church, are we doing that thinking any moment? All of this will change. And eternity will be here. See, in the larger context of Matthew 25, the main point of the parable is really clear. Our readiness for Jesus' return is determined by our stewarding of the resources that he's given to us. We show, we anticipate, we show we're ready for Jesus' return by the way we order our lives according to stewarding the resources that he's given us. And so Jesus warns us of the coming eternal reality so that we don't have to taste it. It's like a good parent who would continually warn their kids not to run out into the street. We've got a Savior that's saying, I want you to know. I want you to be prepared. I want you to think. And he's calling us to put all of our hope and faith and trust in this Savior who is also, we see, the coming judge. 
And then Jesus lays out very clearly the standard by which we will be judged, and it's this, mercy shown to the least of these. Our our deeds are merely a witness to the reality that our heart and life has been changed. So I'd ask, do merciful deeds flow out of your heart? Do compassion and concern and action for the least of these flow out of your heart? Certainly deeds, we would understand, are not the root of our salvation. But these deeds certainly are the fruit of our salvation. And so we are compelled here to live a life of good deeds because eternity is continually in our gaze. Second thing we see this morning is that mission coalesces faith and works. Now, we stand boldly on the solas of the Reformation. They hang on our walls here in the languages where our church is invested and and serving globally around the world. But these solas reinforce what Ephesians chapter 2 makes perfectly clear. Remember what Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so we know that that's the truth that the gospel is rooted in, but we keep reading to the very next verse, and we understand the harmony between faith and works. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to what? Do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so these powerful verses show us that uh, we are certainly saved by grace through faith alone. It's the amazing gift of a loving God, but we're saved for a purpose, created to do good works that God's prepared for us. So again, we'll return ourselves to the heart of the gospel and remind ourselves that religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Religion puts the emphasis on the work. What does the gospel say? I'm accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. We see the difference, right? We see the heart motivation here. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. The work that Christ has accomplished for us, which means the logical outflow of our salvation is what? (laughs) We would do good works. That when our heart is changed by the gospel, we live with new values and new priorities. It's the evidence that our heart has changed. And of course, what's most important about the final judgment we see in our text this morning is not that we do good works in order to prove our faith to the world, most certainly not even to God. We're living out the mission of God for the glory of God. We're demonstrating God's love to the least and to the lost as if it were Christ himself. And remember, this comes out of the overflow of our heart. Remember the two greatest commandments that were given? What? Love God and love others. It says if you're going to boil it down to anything, it's going to be your love for God vertically demonstrated by your love for others horizontally. So our faith and our works are rooted in God's mercy. Third thing we see this morning is that missions compels us to see the least of these. 
Now, there's some biblical scholars commentating on verse 40 that believe the reference to the least of these brothers that Jesus is speaking specifically of his disciples and the disciples that were going to suffer great persecution while living out the ministry of the gospel. And so, in other words, in caring for the church, for the brothers, we're doing it as if we were serving Jesus himself. And I would certainly agree with that this morning. But I believe that Christ's meaning here goes beyond just faith to those in the body, to faith that would demonstrate works to all those who are in great need, any who are poor and needy. Because a narrow interpretation uh, of this seems inconsistent with the many verses throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that convey God's special concern for the poor. I mentioned Isaiah 58 earlier. Look with me at verses six and seven. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Now you gotta remember the religious were shocked to hear this. They couldn't believe what they were hearing because they were saying to God, God, we're doing everything for you. We come to the temple and we worship and we read and we study the scriptures and we pray and it seems like you're just not hearing us. You're not blessing us. And God says to them, if you think you can have a relationship with me and not with the oppressed, then you really don't have a relationship with me. If you think you can have a relationship with me and not care about the poor, and the needy, and the least of these, then you don't understand what it means to have a relationship with me. And the religious are shocked. They can't believe it. Look at Proverbs 14. Whoever opposes a poor man insults his maker, but he is generous to the needy, honors him. And then a few chapters later, Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. The reality is this. God identifies with the people at the bottom. We see that over and over throughout scripture, that this is God's heart. He says, I'm a father to the fatherless. I'll be a husband to the widow. Do you understand how radical that was? Not just for God's people, but for all the cultures of the world to hear that. This was religion upside down. All cultures and religions value the people at the top. The kings and the wealthy and the nobility, right? Those that are well off and and well to do. And here God is saying, I've come not for them, but for the lowest of the lows. No one will be out of the reach or out of my heart. And you say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, remember God showed up himself in a barn. The son of God, savior of the world, born into a feeding trough lived out his life and ministry virtually homeless, saying foxes have holes and uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then what? Jesus eats his last meal in a borrowed room. He dies on a cross, and then he's buried in a borrowed tomb. Then in our text this morning, we see Jesus sitting on the throne And he's saying how the least, how you've treated the least of these is how you've treated me. And each group is separated, the sheep and the goats. And they both respond the same way, though, if you notice. They said, well, when did we see you and do these things? 
We don't remember seeing you in these situations, hungry or thirsty or naked or in in prison. And his point is, you may not have recognized that it was me, but the decision was, did you see them and did you serve them? And that's the question for us this morning. Do you see them and will you serve them? If you're unaware of what's going on in the world, let me give you an opportunity to see them to have your eyes open to the reality of what will happen in the next five minutes.
question remains before us, do you see them and will you serve them? I, I understand it is absolutely, at times, overwhelming. But church, this is where we shine. This is where the church is at her best. Think throughout history, when everybody ran out, it was the Christians who ran in. Through the various plagues, through the AIDS crisis, through Ebola. When people threw out unwanted babies and children, it was Christians who said, we want them. We'll love them. We'll take them and raise them as our own. Just look around, Presbyterian Hospital, Baptist Hospital, right? This is where the church is the church. When we live on mission by serving the ones that no one else served and by embracing those whom society discarded, Christ's followers have reflected the character of Christ. Tertullian, who was a third century author, observed, it's our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Oh, look, they say, look how they love one another. Persecution, death, imprisonment, didn't stop them. Love was their brand. And did you notice in our text this morning the deeds that Jesus listed? They're really not all that difficult. Providing clothing, shelter, giving a welcome, being hospitable, feeding uh, the hungry, visiting the prisoners, speaking up for the voiceless, caring about others, ministering to the sick. Now, these are opportunities that are certainly around the world, but they're right here under our nose. These aren't complicated deeds of mercy. These are things that Christ followers can do regardless of ability. Two practical ways we do these. First is advocacy. Uh, my strong desire for you this morning is that welling up inside you would be a sense of, I have to do something. And I would say that's a great place to start. Scripture encourages us to start by advocating for the least of these. Proverbs 31, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. You may not be able to do everything, but I promise you this, you can do something. And you can start with awareness and you can start by speaking up practicing advocacy for the least of these. You may not always be able to go to them or may not always be able to go for them, but you can use your voice to speak for them. Secondly, I challenge you to generosity. The people of God have always been marked by radical generosity. It should be one of our distinctives in a world that's marked by greed and selfishness. Hebrews 13 challenges us, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And again, we see there's a special concern for the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the oppressed throughout Scripture, and our challenge is to see the least of these, but we don't stop there. We respond with generosity. We give out of what we have been given. As Christ followers, we spend ourselves for the needs of Others, we aren't just spending detached of any hard investment. This isn't radical giving that it's at arm's length. This is an overflow of our heart. It's who we are. 
Remember what Job said, it was chapters 29 and 31, he said, if I treated my possessions, my money, my bread, uh, my gold, the the stuff that I had, if I treated it as my own and I didn't share it with those that are in need, it would be a sin to be judged. Faith family, God wants our lives to overflow with mercy and love and compassion, the marks of his kingdom. As followers of Jesus, we have a choice to respond to the unsettling realities with fear and avoidance or follow him. Follow him in responding to the greatest needs of our day with love and with hope. And we understand that salvation doesn't depend on our works, but we also know that caring for those in need is evidence of a faith that changes lives. So to put this text in a nutshell this morning, I would say this. I will be judged by mercy received by how I've shared with others in need.